Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Ephesians, and we'll be reading from chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. So if you want to turn there with me, I'll give you a moment to find that. And we'll remain standing uh, out of honor for the Lord and His Word, which is perfect, inspired, without any error. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You may be seated. And in just a moment, we'll pray together. As we do, uh, we're going to especially remember Eric and Debbie Smith today. They're serving with a ministry called One Challenge, developing future leaders uh, in Colorado. So as we pray, we'll pray for them, and let's pray together now. Father, we are just so floored and grateful and thankful as we read these words in Ephesians to think of what you've done for us. We know that this is our story, the story of us being rebels against you, dead in our sins, following after the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, slaves to Satan and to his designs and to his influence in our lives. But Lord, for those who've trusted in Christ, you've made us alive. And we're so thankful that we're gathered together as a people this morning who've been made new by your grace. We know it's by grace we've been saved and nothing else. Lord, it's only that you have reached down and rescued us out of that death and out of that darkness, brought us into life, forgiveness for every sin, union with Christ, standing before you as a result of that. Father, we're just so thankful. Thank you that you transform us as a community so that we can be a people who model what it is to know you and have lives of love and compassion and kindness and forgiveness and grace and a focus on others instead of ourselves. Lord, everything that we have has come from you, and so we worship you and praise you and thank you so much. Lord, we pray for our church. We ask that at Grace you would continue to work by your Holy Spirit to transform us into a holy people, a people who reflect uh, your image as we love one another and love the world around us. Lord, we ask that even this morning as we're gathered together, you would continue your work of purifying us, of, of rooting out the sin in our hearts, exposing those things to us, transforming us as we see the glory of Christ from one degree of glory to the next. Lord, we long to be a people who would be pleasing to you, honoring to you, and we thank you so much that in Christ we are. We have, we have righteousness before you, standing with you, and we know that we'll be with you forever and ever. So Lord, we praise you for these things. We also want to lift up Eric and Debbie to you. We pray for their ministry, uh, raising up leaders who are going to go and serve and impact the church. And we just pray that, that what they are doing would be useful in your hands, Lord, that it would be fruitful, that you would raise up people uh, from their ministry who would be very faithful, committed to the truth of your word and the sufficiency of the gospel to change lives and to save and to rescue people. We pray for uh, them as well, that you would just encourage Eric and, and Debbie that they would be um, 
grateful and thankful and uh, excited about the work that you've given them to do, that they would be able to focus on the things that matter most and not be uh, just distracted by different details. And even this morning, as they're in fellowship with their church there, we just pray your blessing on them and their lives, and we're so thankful for them and their service. Lord, we love you, and we're thankful for this morning to be together. We pray that you would receive all the glory as we're worshiping, singing, praying, hearing your word. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand once again as we sing, crown him with many crowns?
Zechariah 13.1 prophesied, In that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for impurity. And then we see the fulfillment of that prophecy in Hebrews 9, as we see what flows in that fountain for us. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So let's sing together. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Let's sing together.
ocean. Lord, we thank you for your amazing grace to us in Christ. Lord, that even when we were sinners, Christ died for us and took all the punishment for our sin so that no judgment, no condemnation remains for us to face, Lord, but only an eternal relationship with you. Lord, we thank you for the grace that you just pour out on us in such abundance. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand your word this morning. Lord, would it help us to be more and more conformed to the person of Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to, just in your Holy Spirit, to be obedient to you and walk in faith to Christ. We love you, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, today in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 to 7, we will see a magnificent display of God's grace. How God's grace in Christ shapes our life and hope. It's a wonderful description of God's grace on display. Displays usually say something. You go somewhere and it has something in a display case. It's usually, look how great this is and, you know, buy me and enjoy me, Right? Well, you can see food in a display case, maybe at a restaurant, maybe you go somewhere and there's samples of food you want. Maybe you go to a uh, fireworks show and you see these uh, fireworks on display, or you go see a Christmas lights display, or maybe you go out, you know, and see stars in the sky where you can actually see them. But you put your best on display. You advertise goodness with a display, and Think about going to the Grand Canyon, you see God's glory on display. Here in this passage today, what we're going to see is that God's grace is on display now and will be forever in the gospel. And it's not like human displays, it's uh, displayed in human hearts and lives, but it reflects the goodness and the grace of God, reflects the glory of God. The God's grace on display says clearly and loudly and appropriately, praise the giver of this grace. We know that as we continue on in the Christian life, we often are um, taking grace for granted. It's, it's very easy to take God's grace for granted, to talk about grace but not display it, to pray for grace but not believe we will see it or to witness grace and not recognize it somehow. Or even to call ourselves Grace Church, but not live or speak graciously. It's human nature to diminish the value, the true value of what is evident, to even ignore what we see. But what Ephesians is doing is just painting this, this perfect portrait of God's grace, and it's in sharp contrast with the darkness of human sin. And it is such that we would appreciate God's magnificent grace. Ephesians is, is wonderful about that. Chapter 1 just extols the exceedingly wonderful acts of God in saving a people for himself. It shows us how beautiful salvation is. That the Father providentially planned it. That the Son perfectly sacrificed himself. The Spirit sealed the inheritance, the guarantee, and the mark of ownership. But chapter 2 starts 
with the bad news. Chapter 2 goes back and rehearses our former spiritual condition before Christ, tells us the bad news first in verses 1 to 3. You were dead in your sin. You were deceived in your sin. You delighted in your sin. You were doomed in your sin. It even leaves us in suspense as we wait for the solution to our spiritual dilemma. The subject, even of verses 1 to 3, isn't found until verse 4. God. It's one of the greatest verses in the Bible, Ephesians 2, 4. But God. The eternal contrast. The sovereign good plan of God. But God, being rich in mercy, his eternal character, is moved with compassion to show mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. His eternal cause, his motive, the eternal active choosing love of God. And yet, as we know so well, we, we fail to grasp the depth of our sin. And so verses 1 to 3 just continually continue to remind us. And then we fail to to grasp the greatness of God's mercy, but verse 4 just continually tells us. And we hear all the words, and we see words on a wall and words in a book, but we fail to grasp the greatness of what has been done for us in Christ. And so verses 5 to 7 remind us. If you're a believer today, verses 5 to 7 reminds you of what makes you a Christian. If you're a Christian today, verses 5 to 7 reminds every believer of what makes them a Christian. It shows us clearly, without apology, uh, how for us God is and what he did without us. What he did without our help, without our cooperation. That God's grace in Christ shapes our life and hope. In these three verses, we see two primary things. First, our perfect union with Christ. Verses 5 and 6 just talk about the believer's union with Christ. But then, in verse 7, God's permanent display in Christ. God's permanent display in Christ. First, though, our perfect union with Christ. Verses 5 and 6. And, and what's going to happen here is you're going to see three actions of God. And what was brought about by three actions of God? These are compound verbs. Literally, it's we were co-made alive, we were co-raised, we were co-seated all with Christ. The first thing we see is we were made alive with Christ. This is for the believer. This is what happens to a believer. You're made alive with Christ. It's the primary act of the three things, being made alive, raised, and seated. The primary act being made alive in Christ. So verse 4 tees us up, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses. That's the key. Even when we were dead, that our condition, when God intervened in his merciful love, was we were the walking dead. We can't even imagine that, right? We're zombies, lifeless, hopeless, condemned spiritually, but God. But God, in his mercy, in his kindness, his loyal covenant love, given as he wills, as Romans 9, 6, 15 tells us, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. The psalmist tells us that God is rich in faithful love. Micah seven eighteen tells God delights in steadfast love. 
Ephesians 1.6 told us we were saved, believers, to the praise of his glorious grace. All to praise his glorious grace. So it says that even when we were dead, verse 5 tells us, he made us alive together with Christ. He did something. He did it. We didn't do it. And, and Christ's resurrection drives this, this supernatural act of regeneration that happens and even God's sustaining and preserving grace in our life. It's because of death. He died for our sins. He died in our place. And therefore, the Christian can be alive spiritually, alive in a new way. This is regeneration. Regeneration is the greatest act ever. It's the difference between death and life. There's no greater contrast between death and life. You go to a funeral, you see the dead body, they're dead. Everybody else is walking around. The, the biggest contrast, death and life. And we're told that when we were dead, incapable, and by the way, opposed. By the way, this is not Christ waiting for us to recognize him. This is not Christ wringing his hands hoping that we will, we will receive him. This is grace given and received by us. You add nothing. You add nothing. Jonathan Edwards put it this way, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Then verse 5 tells us, by grace you have been saved. Just slips that in there. We're, knowing, we're talking all about grace, and it's going to be explained. Here's a preview of the explanation in verses 8 and 9. But it just slips it in there. Verse 5, by grace you have been saved. Don't forget, saved by grace. That's a completed action that you have been saved. It has continuing results. You are saved. Grace is the point of this passage. It reflects the heart of the gospel. That Christ died for God's people when they were helpless, dead, sinful enemies. The grace was behind God's saving acts. Grace, God's favor despite the undeserving recipients. That God grants forgiveness. That God grants righteousness even to those who had rejected his rule as their creator and treacherously fought against him. You see echoes of Ephesians 2 in Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 7. We ourselves were once foolish. We were disobedient. We were led astray. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. I hope that doesn't describe you. If you're saying you're a Christian and this describes you, you've probably misunderstood the Christian life or you need to do a lot of repenting. But it says this in, in Titus 3, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration, there's the word again, and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. 
Stop there for a moment. If you've believed some kind of lie that says that once you become a Christian, then you need to get the Holy Spirit, you've believed a lie. Because even right here it says, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. When you become a Christian, you have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit immediately. So that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So Titus tells us too, we were saved, made alive by grace. Even if you go over and look over in Romans chapter 5 with me, go over to Romans 5 in your Bibles. Find Romans 5. Put your eyes on a few verses with me. We'll start at verse 6. Romans 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die Verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. You've got to grasp those words and, and not let just you know, some default thing that you heard once uh, slip back in. God was acting on behalf of his people. He did something. It, literally, this is, you know, he made us co-alive with the Messiah, Christ, the King. King Jesus raised to exalted kingship, reigning over his kingdom. The picture is of being dead and then being made alive. That God made us alive with Christ. That even as, that even as Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he brought us forth. That you heard the outward call of the gospel to believe and the inner call of the spirit in your heart quickened you that you got regenerated, God regenerated you, made the dead live, gave you life so you would believe. You can't overemphasize how important the doctrine of regeneration is. If you get this wrong, the whole Christian life is going to be you trying to do something. It's not, it's not about you know, trying to be a better person. The Christian life is not about you know, making good people a little better. This is not... It's not about getting religion. This is God making you a new person. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. What did Jesus tell Nicodemus? Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again or you will not see the kingdom of God. Now he didn't then say, now you go make that happen. He didn't say, now you go and do that. The Spirit does that. Jesus said, the Spirit does that. 18th century evangelist George Whitfield preached from John chapter 3 thousands of times. One day he was pouring out his heart preaching John chapter 3. There was a man listening to him with his pockets full of rocks 
to throw at him. After the sermon, the man comes up to him and says, I was here to break your head. Your sermon broke my heart. God gave that angry man life through the gospel. See, the gospel can melt ice or it can harden cement. Romans 9.18 tells us, God has mercy on whom he wills and he harden whom he wills. God causes us to be born again. And that's 1 Peter 1, 3 tells us. This is nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Do you, do you believe even the words of the song? Yeah, I don't even care. I don't care if this pushes against your sensibilities. This is meant to bring you to your senses. To believe the word of God. That Jesus Christ died a cruel death as a criminal on a cross, not so the world would be a more comfortable place to live or that people would become more moral, but to redeem people to the praise of God and the sin he died to overcome was rebellion against God the creator. That this world he came to set free from sin was ruled by the devil. We're not just talking about getting a little bit better or having a little improvement in your life. You were dead. God made you alive. And this promise of the gospel, this promise of grace in the gospel, all creation was looking forward to it. All creation was looking forward to this great act of redemption. For you today, if you're you're hearing these words today, you must believe the gospel and, and turn to Christ. Believe that Jesus died in your place at the cross substituting himself, taking the punishment that you deserved, shedding his blood, being buried, rising from the the dead on the third day. How do you know if you're spiritually alive? Several weeks past, I gave seven signs of life. How do you know if you're spiritually alive? How do you know God made you alive? Not not, not that you made yourself alive. How do you know that God made you alive? How do you know that God took you from the dung heap of sin and raised you up and gave you life? How do you know? Well, first and foremost, you believe the gospel. You believe and love the gospel. And secondly, you're convicted of and you confess your sins. You actually, you're convicted of your sins and you confess your sins. And third, you understand the word of God. Like you can actually understand what it means and what it says. Not every part that's maybe tough sometimes, but the general message of the gospel and the Bible, you understand. And and number four, you love God, the one you used to hate, the one you used to fight against. And please don't tell me, oh, I've always loved God. Maybe you don't remember. Number five, you love the body of Christ, your family, your brothers and sisters in Christ. You love Christians. You don't, you know, harass them. You don't talk behind their backs. You you love the body of Christ. And six, you desire to serve the Lord. Like, you want to serve him somehow. And seven, you desire to be with Jesus. You want to be with Jesus in heaven. You know that Jesus is always with you, and you want to go to be with him someday. And if these things are true about you, rejoice that God has made you alive in Christ. Like, rejoice in it. So it's your perfect union with Christ. It, it, it's seen first that he makes you alive with him. You're made alive with Christ. But then it says in verse 6, and raised us up with him. 
well, this is mind-blowing stuff. This is the kind of stuff you can't make up. If we were writing the Bible, we couldn't figure this one out. We wouldn't have been able to imagine this. And raised us up with him. So he, he died and was buried and was raised from the dead. And here's the deal. You want to get your mind blown? Here it is. What is true of us spiritually is like what happened to Jesus when he was raised from the dead. Chapter 1, verse 19 told us that there was power exerted raising him from the dead. The immeasurable greatness of the power of God uh, to show the immeasurable riches of his grace. Chapter 3 tells us that it was the gift of God's grace uh, by the, the working of his power. And the idea for a Christian is that you are raised to a new life, to a new even quality of life, to a new realm of life, and that, that what God did for Christ, mind-blowing stuff, what God did for Christ, he did at the same time for believers. He did at the same time for believers. That we were raised with Christ when Christ was raised. When he was resurrected. Literally, the word here, it literally means we were just synced up with Christ. Synced up with Christ. Long before you ever had heard the, the, the name Jesus Christ. The title and the name. You, Romans 1.4 tells us this. He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Spurgeon put it this way, the divinity of Christ finds its surest proof in his resurrection. But here's the mind-blowing stuff. When Christ got up out of the tomb some 2,000 years ago, so did I. When Christ got up out of the tomb 2,000 years ago, so did you, believer. Colossians 2.12 speaks of it already took place. We were raised with him. That's why Colossians 3.1 says, if you've been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. This is speaking of our perfect union with Christ. We were made alive with Christ and raised with Christ, positionally raised with Christ. And then it says that he seated us with Christ. Raised and seated, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Literally, co-raised us and co-seated us in the high heavenlies. It is parallel with co-made alive. These are indicatives. This is what God did and we receive. And the emphasis here is on God's actions. Here he seated us. I mean, it tells us a lot about ourselves as believers. Uh, you can go with the great negatives. You're no longer dead. You're no longer outcast. You're no longer un God's, under God's wrath. You're no longer under condemnation. If you're a believer and as Christ was raised and sat down at the right hand of God, you are seated with Christ. The God exalted Jesus above all powers. Chapter 1 told us. And we are seated with him. There is a, 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 literally, it speaks to superiority and authority over evil powers. That we are seated. You know, it's interesting where you get seated sometimes. Sometimes you go to a restaurant and they seat you in the worst spot. You're like, ah, they don't care about me. Sometimes you get on an airplane and you're like, I wish I could be up there closer to the front of the plane. One time I got bumped up, Angela and I got bumped up to a higher class of airplane seat. Sometimes, it hasn't happened to me in very many times in my life, but there have been times I, I get seated on the platform, you know, at, a, at an event or what have you. See, when you remember how many times it's happened, you know it doesn't happen very often. 
But here, we're seated with him. And here's why, what you need to know today, believer. Okay, so you're seated with him with the power to overcome evil. And he will give you the strength you need to do it. Wow. He will give you the strength you need to live this life. Praise God. Hallelujah. Like, well, I don't have to give in to Satan's schemes. This is insistent. These words are insistent. These are not suggestions. These are not, you know, this might have happened. If you're like a really good Christian, this happened. But if you're not that good of a Christian, you know, you're in a different, a different, you know, level. This is insisting. This is insistent. And by the way, the way this is written is it's insisting in a forceful, emotion-filled way. So don't take it lightly. Don't take it for granted. You know why? Because this explains your life, believer. This explains your life. See, you get this wrong, again, you're going to run around trying to do everything on your own all the time. This explains your life. You're not God, but you belong to God. You're not God, but you belong to God. And if you are his, he can do with you whatever he wishes. Because he took you when you were dead and made you alive, and now you worship at his throne. He has, this is literally, this is how these verses read. He has most certainly co-made us alive with the Messiah and has most certainly co-raised and co-seated us in the high heavenlies in Christ. God's not messing around here. This is not a joke. This is not like plain church. This is not like, you know, light Christianity. This is the heart of the gospel. Verses four to six, they're, they're focused on the believer's union with Christ. You can read over in, in Romans 6 and see an extended treatment of this union. What Ephesians is telling us is before conversion, you were dead in transgressions and sins. Verses 1 and 5 tell us that. And God, this is what chapter 1 told us, God eternally decreed to do something. Chose us before the foundation of the world. Chapter 1, verse 4. Let's start right off with that. And predestined us for what? Redemption, forgiveness, eternal life. All this packed in chapter 1. And holiness. By the act of the Holy Spirit. This is a mysterious, monergistic operation of God. Monergistic. The work of one. We could not come up with this idea. We would work our way to write ourselves in. And here it is, right before us, for us to receive and believe and rejoice in. And the reason why you want to know it is this. The, this union with Christ guarantees your security, believer. You're feeling insecure? You don't know for sure if you're really saved? This guarantees your security in Christ. Nothing can change it. Martin Lloyd-Jones said God uses the salvation of guilty and rebellious sinners as a means to bring glory and honor to his name. And because this salvation is of God and holy by grace, those who receive it can never fall away. Jesus is always with the believer. 
See, our union with Christ, even, is illustrated by our gatherings. Sure, there's people that gather that aren't believers, but the person who's been made alive and raised and seated with Christ say, I must be together with my family in Christ. So believers must be together. The Bible cannot conceive of a believer not in fellowship with the gathered body if they're physically able. If you're on the, the, the live stream and you can't physically able get to the fellowship, this is for you. But if you're on the live stream and you can get physically to a fellowship, drive over right now. Come in your jammies. I don't care. United. The thing is, Christians are united. They're united in Christ. We have this perfect union with Christ. We were made alive with Christ. We were raised with Christ. We were seated with Christ. Of course we're going to get together. And it leads you to, to focus your attentions on God's permanent display in Christ, his, his display of grace. Look at verse 7 with me. So that, this is the reason, okay? This is, this is why. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In the ages to come is an obvious future time reference here. Literally, it goes back to chapter 1, in this age and in the age to come. God's permanent display in Christ. You ask the question, when will the display start? It's like, when are the fireworks starting? When, when is the show going to start? What's gonna, when is it happening? I want to get there on time. I don't want to be late. When? Here's the answer. Now and forever. Now in, in, in measure that sometimes looks dim and forever in increasing measure. Fuller and fuller understanding and grasp and enjoyment of God's grace. So in the coming ages, he would show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. It's an obvious future time reference. It's, it's not merely after Christ's return. This is referring to the endless extent of unfolding eras, and it refers simply to all future time. So like now, one second from now, one second from then, oh, on and on and on and on, both in this age and in the age to come. It's the future age of this grace will be fully appreciated, though. I mean, right now, sometimes we've got blinders on. Sometimes we can't see. Sometimes we're, we're clouded and confused. Right now, you and I are limited because of our sinful human limitations and distractions. Our sight is blurry. And, and we take for granted, do we not? Take for granted the overabundance of God's grace. Yet in the future, in the future, with a new body, without sin, believer, you are going to see God's glory fully. You will be able to fully and faithfully appreciate the surpassing wealth, the surpassing great wealth of his mercy and grace. But we have it on God's authority. God is going to demonstrate the surpassing wealth of his grace forever, and it starts now dimly. It's going on now dimly. It's his permanent display in Christ. It's, it's now and forever. And what is it? What is it? What, what do we look for? Right? 
What do we look for? It's the depths, it's, it's showing the depths of his immeasurable grace. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That God's mercy to rebels will serve to demonstrate his grace in all future time. That he is going to, he's going to forever show the combined cosmic audience his gracious and lavish and generous goodness. He's going to display it. He's going to demonstrate it. He's going to declare it loudly in many ways, his grace. He's going to show his grace. He's showing it now, but he's going to show it more fully, and we will see it more fully, and we will grasp it more more greatly. It's going to be shown, and you notice, in Christ Jesus. Every benefit you enjoy, believer, is, is from God, mediated exclusively through the incarnate Messiah. God's mercy and love was the motivation for his initiative in saving you. It was this mighty rescue that arose out of God's gracious act. And and God's love in Christ irresistibly makes you alive and raises you and seats you in the heavenly ages to demonstrate in every coming age the far-reaching, all-encompassing, all-surpassing, universe-expanding wealth of his grace. He did this. And he is doing this. And he will do this, all in, in, in measure appropriate to his kindness directed toward us who are in Christ Jesus. God is going to dispense his grace to us forever in Christ. In the ancient pagan world, there was a common practice that you would dedicate anything won in battle to the gods. If you would ever enter an unplundered temple, it was like entering a museum displaying various dedicated spoils of victory from former battles, gold and silver and weapons. The church. The church is God's redeemed, dedicated, prized possession, rescued from blinding slavery to sin and Satan, the prince of demons. And we are the bountiful gifts from Christ's victorious entrance into heaven. And the church will be the trophies of battle on display in the ages to come. Your life, my life, fully glorified for all eternity. The redeemed, as chapter 5 tells us, the redeemed, purified, radiant church, the recipients of his grace, trophies, we will, we'll, we'll display the infinite glories and riches of his grace as God dispenses forever to us in Christ his grace. We are his trophies that will demonstrate his grace forever. And we will see it this way, and I hope you see it now even in, in a glorious little glimpse. Look what God did with such a mess that you could look in the in the mirror and, and, and say, well, look what God did with such a mess. Instead of wrath, I have eternal grace. I'm alive, I'm raised, I'm seated with Christ by God's grace. I hope you can see it today. Now, how does this hit life now, right? 
I've been thinking about this a lot. I'm thinking, well, it's great to think ahead, but how does it hit my life now? And I came up with five ongoing outcomes that I observe about God's grace toward me that I hope that you can connect with as well. And how, how ruminating on God's grace changes my heart. Thinking about God's grace in the gospel. Thinking about what he has done with no help from me. Well, first, it rightly reminds me of God's initiating and sustaining work. It rightly reminds me. It, like, it recalibrates me to fix my attention upon God's initiating and sustaining work in the gospel. Because what happens then is, then my heart stops striving for acceptance. Then my heart rests in dependence. Then I do not put my hopes on my ability to keep holding on, but on God's ability to do immeasurably more than I could ask or think. We dwell on God's grace, and just the magnificent, glorious grace of God, it it rightly reminds you of God's initiating and sustaining work. But secondly, it mercifully directs my heart to rejoice in good and reject evil. That grace redirects me because of future glory. Like, if you think about future glory, it, it should redirect your heart away from evil and toward good. That grace has a cleansing effect on our life output. You know the old saying, garbage in, garbage out? Well, grace in, grace out. That dwelling on grace leads to a renewed heart. Dwell more on grace. Like, think more about grace. Like, sin is lawlessness, yet grace sets you free to serve Jesus from a purified heart. And he will take you through the hard times. Samuel Rutherford, in The Loveliness of Christ, said this, Let our Lord's sweet hand Square us and hammer us and strike off the knots of pride and self-love and world worship and infidelity. This is done by the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Mercifully redirects your heart to rejoice in good and reject evil. Third, it, it powerfully Thinking about grace powerfully prompts me to live and speak and want to serve from the outflow of God's grace in my life. If I'm saved by grace, then I live by grace and I serve by grace. And that God's grace shapes the way you live. It should shape the way you live. It affects you. It should shape your mind, drive your actions, transform your interactions. That, that a display of God's grace seen in a living, breathing human Yielded to God is a beautiful thing to behold. That God does immeasurably more than we ask or think by his power through his grace. And it hits your words. The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Our words become more gracious. Our correspondence, our communication becomes more more careful. Because grace powerfully prompts me to live and speak and serve from the outflow of grace. And fourth, it honestly shows me there is more to this life than my happiness. How many times does, you know, we wake up in the morning and think, well, I hope that today will make me happy. I hope this happens or that happens. Well, grace from God honestly shows you that there is more to this life than your happiness. And then you learn, like, like we learn... Really, as as believers, we should be learning this every day. Fleeting pleasures don't satisfy. But 
knowing God will display his grace forever helps you live. Helps me live. I mean, do me a favor, will you? Show the glories. Tell the stories of God's grace in your life. Like, like show the glories and tell the stories of God's grace in your life. As you have experienced, God graciously worked to transform your heart and life. Even the little, even the little movements, even the little progress, celebrate it. Do you realize, believer, if you're a believer, your life is on display right now. So why wouldn't we want to yield to Christ such that our life is a sweet display of transforming grace? If you're going in the wrong direction right now and you're a believer, God will lead you to repentance, the grand U-turn that you'll, you'll find out. Sanctification isn't you trying harder to avoid consequences. Sanctification is you loving Jesus more to glorify God. So grace honestly shows you there's more to this life than your happiness. It's about God's glory. And then fifth and lastly, God's grace and dwelling on God's grace appropriately focuses me on God's eternal pleasures. Now when I'm thinking about God's eternal pleasures and it refocuses me on that, then I can see that, that even the best earthly pleasures need to be put in perspective and they are even just a, dip, a distant glimpse of future glory. And then what I see is that sinful pleasures are really, are really unmasked imposters rivaling a throne that is not theirs to claim. That there before me, as I, as, I, as I rehearse the gospel and as I relish it, it refocuses me on God's eternal pleasures. And, and then I, I open my Bible and I, and I read the wonders of God's grace in Scripture as I study the Word. I read the wonders of God's grace. And, and then it just leads me to tell the wonders of God's grace, His immeasurable grace, and not hold back. That even it would lead you to sing the wonders of God's grace even louder and more intently that you would take up your wartime songbook with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs together with fellow Christians and sing loud and strong and bold the glories and grace of God. That you would think about it. That you would think of the wonders of God's manifold grace. I remember back when I was in college you know, Long Beach State and I was would uh, in the afternoon go up on, a, on this one hill up in upper campus and I would just lay down and want to take a nap and I would look up and there was this spot. It was just, I would look up and there'd be these really tall trees and I would just look up at the clouds going by and I, would, and I was a newer believer at that point and I would just relish how good God is in, in all ways and, and it made me think about his wonders. I mean, think about it. Even when, when you gaze at the stars and you think about the heavens declaring the glory of God. But what happens is when you think about God's grace to us in Christ, every great thing you can say is not enough. But you keep saying it. And you rejoice in the wonder of God's amazing grace that, that, that you, you grasp this. Wow, God's glorious grace will be displayed in progressively fuller magnitude as time unfolds. It's never going to run dry. It's never going to get canceled. It's never going to go out of style. It's never going to end up obsolete. It will always be exactly as promised and more. Think about how disappointed we get in so many things in life. You see the pictures and you get there and it's like it wasn't that way. 
But when God says his grace is going to be gloriously great in, in, in exceeding measure, in progressive measure, it will be better than you imagine. For eternity, there will be the collective, magnificent display of God's grace. And, and think about this with me. Right now, you're, what you see, like believer, your life is, whether you're down on yourself or not, your life, believer, is a magnificent display of God's grace. And church, our life together, is a magnificent display of God's grace. We should see it and praise God. Jesus died, was raised, is now seated at the right hand of God, will reign forever. We died. We were raised. We're now seated. We'll be shown rich grace forever. But believers, we are a magnificent display of God's grace for all time with all the redeemed. This is why these verses are so foundational and crucial for our life that tells you, believer, why you're a Christian. Your perfect union with Christ, what God did, and then God's permanent display in Christ and how it shapes your life and your hope that you know my salvation is given to me by God and it is unexplained apart from God operating on my soul while it was dead. And now I'm alive and I'm alive with countless others redeemed from the curse, my family in Christ whom I love, and we are living in a watching world, and, and my salvation is not for me, just like your salvation is not for you. And, and the collective redeemed, it's not about us. It is for the praise of God. And we can't fathom such goodness. It, this is the choice marrow of the gospel. This is the delicious center. This is the dense goodness to us in Christ. This is the rich caviar. This is like a spring that never runs dry. This is like a tank of gas that never runs out. This is like never having to refill your water bottle again. This is like your phone battery never draining. This is something that will never break, will never stop, will never wear out. This just unending, glorious flow and overflow of grace that we will, and this is so wonderful, we will progressively see the glories of God and his grace to greater clarity, in greater fullness, more and more depth as time goes by in greater measure. It's better than looking into the depths of Lake Tahoe. All of heaven will glorify him for what he has done to save sinners. Revelation 7, 10 to 12 captures what's going to happen. Crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels are standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing, and glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might be to our God forever and ever. We praise you, Lord. You are so good to us. Your grace amazes us. Your grace brought us to life, gave us life. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to you 
forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Please stand if you're able. We'll close singing together. my guilty soul I cannot cleanse my filthy stains or make my spirit whole for nothing but the blood of Christ can all my sins erase I dare not claim my righteousness but hide within his grace to save me from the depths, God's pardon I've received. I'm washed within His precious blood, my heart is sprinkled clean. I'll praise the God of holiness, of justice, truth, and me by his mighty hand to walk within his life. So as we close, I have three of my friends here that I have the joy to pray for as they leave tomorrow for a summer mission in Japan. Uh, Some quick announcements first, though. Uh, Midweek service this week will be teaching verse 7, the passage I was in, plus a number of people will be giving testimonies of God's grace in their life, so you won't want to miss it. 
Next Sunday, Memorial Weekend, my friend Phil Hunt will be here from Zambia preaching in the morning services, and then we'll have an all-church barbecue at 4 p.m., smoked meats, rich fellowship, and ministry updates. Quarterly men's event, June 10th. I uh, want to welcome our newest members, Lindsay Parsons right here. Wait, just raise your hand, Lindsay. And uh, Keith, Keith and Margaret and Jacob Bereskin. And uh, I feel like I saw someone. Where are they? Where are they? There's Jacob right there. Yeah. All right. And I think your mom and dad will be in third hour. So, all right. There's Jacob right there. And the welcome lunch today at 1230 for anyone new to Grace. Uh, and you can come even if you didn't sign up. And then we're commissioning this stellar team. So Ellie and Matthew and Hannah Radmilovich. And they're leaving tomorrow. Uh, their mission will start on May 29th, run through July 2nd. And they're going to be in Osaka and Iwakuni, Japan. And uh, we're just going to pray for you as you go. We've been praying for you for a while as you prepare. And now, now is the time. You're all packed and ready to go. So let's pray for you guys. Lord, thank you and praise you for all of the Radmilovich kids here, Ellie and Matthew and Hannah. Thank you, Lord, that they will be so willing to go and share your love uh, running gospel sports camps. Uh, thank you, Lord, for your grace and kindness to them. I uh, pray that you give them the strength they need, the endurance they need. I uh, pray that you uh, give them kind uh, and blessing words and actions to all that they meet. pray that you would uh, lead them and guide them, protect and provide. Lord, we've seen you do so many miracles in so many lives and take so many from death to life and pray that there would be fruit that will remain. We pray that you would be honored and glorified and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. And as we close, Hebrews 13, 20 and 21, and now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Sovereign in the mountain air, sovereign on the ocean floor, with me in the calm, with me. In